Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 498. Man, that's a lot of episodes. My guest this week is an amazing person and we had an amazing chat. I swear we tried to end it about three times, but we just kept getting drawn in to more conversations. Um, I'm joined today by Amar Chadha Patel, fantastic actor, fantastic human we had a history I didn't realise. We did a thing for for Netflix recently together. And then I just f- fell in love with the dude in the Willow series. The Willow series on Disney, right? It's the bollocks. I really l- l- like it. And his character in particular is fantastic. So we're going to get into all of that. But f- before that, thank you for all the love for the drunk cast. I know a lot of you adore the drunk cast and we're sad we didn't have one at the end of the year last year well we got there in the end over six hours of mess so i hope you all enjoyed that if this is your first time tuning in some previous actors i've had on let's throw in florence Pugh. that was a good episode florence has been on twice riz ahmed raul coley lena heady Stephen Graham multiple times, Simon Pegg multiple times. Just loads of really good people. So dig into the back catalogue if you're here for the first time. We're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's my web store. It's where you can buy all my merch for the podcast, for my music, for everything. And you can just support the podcast by doing that. You can also support the podcast by heading over to patreon.com forward slash pip. Or heading over to twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pipio. I have a lot of fun over on Twitch. Me and B. B Dolan have been doing some streams together recently. But, but yeah, there's loads of good stuff over there. I recommend if you've never seen Twitch, come to my TPI Friday events. So they're every Friday around 7, 7.30 on my Twitch channel. And they're just a big Friday night party. So I think you'll enjoy them. Come along to one of them and see how it goes. Anyway, let's get on with this episode. I'm as amazing. And we got into some really deep conversation as well as a lot of silliness and nonsense and a lot of insights into, as I said, this feels like when I add, the reason I mentioned Riz and Florence Pugh, they're two people that I had them on just before they got really big. Neve Algar's another one. There's a fair few people that, that I've had on just before. They've gone crazy. And the episode ends up aging amazingly because it's like the first thing that people find when they search for more on this person. So, And that's what this episode feels like. I wanted to get Amar on as quickly as I could to, um, to get all these st- stories and insights because uh, the dude's going to be an absolute superstar and I look forward to watching all of it but for now you no longer have to look forward to this conversation because it's about to start just now this is episode 498 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Amar Chadha Patel Right, 
I'm joined today by Amma Chada Patel. How are you, sir? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk because we've uh, we've been lining this up for a little while, and mm-hmm. this is probably the least I've prepared for someone I know the least. If you know what I mean, <laughs> if that makes sense, because I feel like we already know each other, and I feel like it's a really yeah. easy chat and conversation from the brief interactions we've had i've felt i've done my prep obviously but i felt this is just going to be a breeze so i hope so i'm excited to be chatting with you you might find out that i'm like a closet right wing nazi i mean either way it's numbers i'm not my friend either way it's it's gonna be numbers but like how are you what you up to at the moment are you are you busy i'd imagine you're busy we're gonna get into i want (laughs) to talk dash cam Willow, which genuinely, I think, Mm. your performance in that is a star maker. Me me and my partner have been watching it and constantly, we're like, I like all of it, but I think you just are so good in that. So I'd imagine you're busy at the moment. Yeah, I'm actually currently in Rome. In Rome? The beautiful city, beautiful ancient medieval, well, maybe it's older than medieval, uh, city of Rome, doing a Netflix show called The Decameron. Nice. Which is a sort of, dark comedic satire set during the plague in the 1300s in Italy. Uh, And it's about a bunch of entitled nobles that run away to a villa in Florence to escape the pestilence. And they all end up screwing each other and probably dying, I guess. Amazing. It sounds (laughs) perfect. It's a romp. It's very fun. I love it. I love it. Well, I mean, as I said, there's loads I want to talk about. But first Mm. of all, let's talk about how we originally met. Because I only mm. found this out recently when we were doing a Zoom read-through of a project we did together. Yeah. So share share kind of the story, if you if if you will. <laughs> it was 1833, um, <laughs> <laughs> and the sun had just risen. I don't know. It's a it's it's a long story in part, but also as far as you and I are concerned, I've always been a huge fan of you ever since Thou Shalt Not came out uh, and the Dan Lasak album you, that you did. Yeah. I've always been a huge fan. And at the time, in those early noughties days, I was working as sort of a de facto head of video at All Saints Clothes Company. I'd sort of somehow stumbled into becoming a director. And it was a dream job. And so Tom Hutt, the guy I was working with, the legendary Tom Hutt, who was the head of music at All Saints, we were just dragging bands and artists into the basement of All Saints Clothes Company, uh, giving them loads of free clothes, and then saying will record expertly your music and yeah. shoot it as videos and release them as live sessions. And that sort of blossomed and, and ended up turning into an activation, I think they call it, at a festival. And so we, yeah. uh, me and my uh, ragtag crew of videographers and Tom sort of jumped in a van, drove down to All Saints and set up like a, I think it was, they, they had a store in the backstage area. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, so in the backstage area, there was like a little All Saints store for artists and, and the like to come and visit. And we had a little corner and we were just, we were kind of just hustling. We were like literally calling anybody <laughs> at the moment who was like, do you know anyone who's a festival who's like really good? <laughs> and we were just dragging as many artists as we could. And you were, were, we were blessed to have you as one of them. So you came down to this All Saints activation tent and then did a bunch of, I think you did like two or three freestyles or like a couple of your own songs. Yeah. And and I I was directing it and shot it. And I was I over it. the moon. Yeah. And then that was, I'm, that's got, gotta be like 10, maybe 10 years ago. At least 10 years ago. I reckon a little bit more maybe. But I remember that period so well because we're in a weird 
era with music. And I think we're kind of a mm. few years away from it in film and TV, and we can talk about that, that later. But we're a weird era in music where, or we were then, it's exciting because anyone can make it so some of the gatekeepers are gone because of the advancements in technology but it's it was scary because the money was falling out of it it was getting harder to get paid to do this as a living and people hear that and go oh you should be doing it for the art or whatever but a festival like Bestival is a prime example it's on the Isle of Wight yeah. It costs money to get there. It costs money to take a crew there and all that kind of thing. So if you're not earning, then you might not be able to do it. I've had people that I used to book a stage at Bestival and I've had people where I had my budget and my budget was my budget and I'd offer people free tickets and payment and they'd be like, look, the fact is I'm coming from the north and I can't mm. afford to get yeah. there. So it's a really weird thing. But there was this era where all festivals and even outside of festivals a bit, because of a lot of clothing brands and all sorts of other things were trying to get into that world, you'd kind of live off the freebies a bit. And that sounds really cheap. But again, I I still live in the same small working class (laughs) town I always lived in. So depending on how early it was, I would have either been living at home with my mum or in my first flat that I've had. So a load of free clothes was... A fucking for sure. Godsend. I've still got the kind of puffer jacket sleeveless hoodie that yeah. I got off you guys. Um <laughs> and as I said on the on 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 the Zoom call, like, I lit up with excitement because on the, at that moment you guys gave me the only pair of shorts as a six foot four man <laughs> I've ever felt comfortable in. And I I repaired them, I sewed them up for years, and now I recreate them by buying some skinny jeans and cutting them up and all this. It's a long story, but the excitement with which I I remembered the shorts rather than y- y- you, I later realised was quite an insult that I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't really remember yeah, you, yeah. but these shorts, Shush. these shorts I got off you guys were astounding. But yeah. They were impactful. Clear memories, man. I, I was the same. I was like early 20s, had finished university, didn't know what I was doing, had stumbled into this world as being this sort of, so what was happening in the music industry, it was like, it's a bit of a dichotomy, a bit of a dissonance, really, because you have these really, these, these, they seem glamorous, these moments mm-hmm. where you get backstage and you're at festivals and you're playing yeah. and then like a, a brand like also just like, here's free clothes. And then you are like, but wait, I'm just going back to my flat share with like six people in yeah. a warehouse where yeah. I'm paying like 400 quid a month. You know, it's, it, you're really oscillating between these two ideals. And I was the same. I was like, I had sort of exploited this little niche in the explosive big bang of digital content and, and everybody wanted it. And, and I had found my way into this company that needed it and didn't know how to look for it. And I was there going, I can help you. And they had all of the infrastructure I needed. They had the e-commerce, they had the YouTube channel ready to go. Mm. They had a, a ready known, ready well-made brand, which had a good tie with music. And all I needed was equipment and time. And, you know, this was the birth of the DSLR era where, yeah. you know, you could get 12 minutes of HD footage on these beautiful soft lenses and suddenly anyone with a visual idea could be a director. And these DSLRs would just line around at All Saints. They had like seven of them because they used yeah. them for lookbooks. They were photography cameras. And yeah, I just, yeah, I remember yeah. saying to Tom, I was like, get a couple of them in and we can make this a dynamic session and we can get three cameras. And, and so it was just there for the taking. And so that year was really exciting. And I remember I was, the, I think the first couple of jobs, he was like, yeah, come down and do some edits. And then and I was like, yeah, but I, I can actually film it as well. And he went, all right, yeah, we'll come and film it. Well, how much do you charge? And you're like, uh, 80 quid? 
How idiot. much is your budget? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not even. Too scared yeah. to, to too scared to lose the job. So you just say anything. And he was like, well, we can give you, you know, 100 quid in cash or 150 quid, 200 quid in, in vouchers. And I was like, I love the vouchers. And so for the first couple of months I was doing it, I was being paid to edit. But whenever I shot anything, they paid me in all sorts vouchers because that was their currency. And I was like, this is a fucking bonus. And for like within six months, <laughs> I went to dressing like a sort of monochromatic hipster dad from Stoke Newington. I literally went from like <laughs> charity shop clothes to like the tightest leather trousers and jeans and yeah. shit. It's very funny. Yeah. For, for a year, I looked very, very flush. <laughs> it was just getting I love it. All sides. I love it. Well, it kind of ties in. And this is, to the, the, the listeners, this is going to be a really weird jump because I now want to talk about taxes. Um, yes. But you did a tweet <laughs> recently that I really connected with and me and... I remember when I had Michaela Cole on a few years back, we talked about how we grew to appreciate the BBC. And this is mm. this is going to sound like a weird comparison, but as working class youngsters fucking paying a TV licence fee and all that, it's like, naff, fuck that, this is outrageous. When you start to appreciate what people like the BBC do and their remit, again, they've got a lot of weaknesses, as we're seeing with... But yeah. Boris Johnson instating someone who was giving him a loan, all this kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not a BBC apologist here. The news, <laughs> a lot of stuff is fucked up there. But their remit for creating art that isn't purely based on viewing figures is responsible for so much, for so, for so many careers that have come for out sure. of the UK in the entertainment industry. And there is a parallel to, to, to taxes there. Again, as a working class lad, I was brought up, you can get a little bit of cash in hand work, you know, we're all poor. Mm. Let's try mm. and not dodge tax, but not not evade, but avoid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. that kind of thing of, let's pay as little, <laughs> let's use the system, pay yeah. as little as possible. And then you grow up and you realise how important taxation is for a society. And you did a, tw- mm. a, a tweet about this off the off the back of, another Tory dodging taxes and being a piece of shit. But can you kind of take the listener through that journey that you had? Because you had a fucking scary one from the sounds of it. Yeah, it was was terrifying. I mean, it's it's partly like understanding your responsibilities as an adult as you're growing up and then also your place in a bigger society. And I, and I, I know it's tragic over the last 12 years of Tory rule and austerity. We're starting to lose our grip on the things that are really great. I mean, there's an amazing tw- Twitter account called No Context Brits. I don't know if you follow mm-hmm. it. Um, do, yeah. But they're often tweeting, like, what's something that the England has that no one else does? And then it's always like, you know, beads on toast and stuff. But the reality is, it's like a, this concept of a big society and, and it's something that you're part of. And, and the BBC falls into that. And like my influences as a, as a sort of comedy actor and a creative person go back to things like Monty Python and The Goons. And, mm-hmm. and like this crazy surreal comedy that was coming out of the UK in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And like you had to have a forward thinking, publicly funded company like the BBC willing to take risks on stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it, we don't know how good we have it. Like we had this, no, this we have this ready made built uh, institution just wanting to explore creativity and we're losing that now. And I think, you know, we're getting to grips with it. And as far as I was concerned, it was simply put, I, I had stumbled into this really well-paid freelance job as, as a content producer with not necessarily any security other than at that time, 
companies wanted content and I could make it. Is that kind of off the back of the All Saints stuff? Because again, if you were doing this for vouchers essentially, but you're building a portfolio and in, in the creative yeah. industry, that's mm. what it's about. No one's going to ask what you got paid there. They're going to see the work that you made and yeah, potentially get more. Of course, yeah. But but I was just amazed at the amount of work. I mean, I'd gone, so I studied production design at university. So I wanted to be a set designer, uh, you know, production designer. And that's what I did. Right. And I graduated university in 2009, I think. And that was right bang after the financial crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't have the wider concepts, you know, wider social economic concepts to really understand what was happening to our financial, to, to, to the industry, the, the film industry in the UK. But ultimately, it's a very small but important industry that requires a sort of more sporadic economy to, to function. It's, it's not, you know, it can't tap into resources. It's private money or it's studio money or it's financing. It's a very strange industry. Yeah. And in 2009, it was kind of dead on its feet. You know, there was no, you might get a Bond film every two years or a Harry Potter, but that's it. You're not going to get a, a thriving industry of constant work. Mm. So if you're going into that industry as a set designer, there's only going to be 20 that are working and you want to work your way up. There's only going to be 10 or so big films a year. So it was a struggle. And I realized very quickly that all I wanted to do was make shit. I loved making things like from Lego to model lighthouses to anything. Yeah. And this concept of, of a more of a delegator in a, in a creative sense was starting to not resonate with me as much. Um, you know, I don't want to sit in a room and be like, oh, we need this building here and these designs and these inspirations. I was like, no, give me a hammer and, and a drill and I want to push it together. So I was looking for alternative ways to do that. And so I got Final Cut Pro, started editing, making music videos for friends. And, 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 and that's how I got to know musicians. And that's how I met Tom. And he said, come and do these edits. And so I did a couple of edits and it was like, oh, well, hold on, this is a couple hundred quid a week. Maybe if I get three, it's eight. It's eight hundred quid a week. And then before mm-hmm. I knew it, I had talked my way into saying, "No, I'll just direct all your content. Do you have a director?" And then within months, it was like, "Okay, we're doing three sessions next week. We're doing two sessions this week." And then suddenly, it was like someone was like, "Oh, I want to shoot this lookbook for for this menswear range, but a cool video would be good." And I was like, "I'm here, mate." And and before I knew it, I was working five, six days a week on a freelance rate, and I think I cleared something like thirty five, forty grand in that one year, mm. which for a 24-year-old freelancer is pretty high mind-blowing, 10 yeah, years definitely. ago. And I just did not know anything about how the tax system works. My knowledge of what tax was, was that it's taken from you at point of payment. And then when you're a yeah. freelancer, it's like, oh no, you've got to put a bit aside. 100%. But, coming for me, coming from retail, coming from yeah. working in factories and all sorts of stuff like that, it's like, oh, tax is the bit I yeah. turn my nose up out when I look at my paycheck and it's smaller than I thought, but it's already gone. It's, it's already, already dealt gone. with. It's not something that's my responsibility. Whereas when you're a freelancer, mm-hmm. different game. It's a con it's an abstract concept. And it's not as simple as like put a bit aside. It's it's you know, so that those first couple of years after university, it was like uh you get, I think at the time you got eight grand tax free, maybe nine mm-hmm. grand. So you could earn up to nine grand. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky if I was clearing nine, 10 grand as a freelance yep. set designer. Yep. But my rent was cheap because I lived in a, a shitty warehouse with, with like four of my best mates. It was like 400 quid a month, you know? So I was able to live. And when you're, when you're below that bracket, you don't pay tax in the year that you're in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. So as a yep. freelancer, you do your tax return in April when you should, and you're given a prediction for what your tax 
bill will be, and they split that into, yeah. and you you pay half in January, and then you pay half in July, and it's a very simple system, and it does kind of work well if you do it properly. But everyone knows that what you do is you wait till the thirty first of January, so you're yeah. always about eight months behind or something. And so you yeah. get this bill, and it's like, oh, okay, next year I have to pay this, so I'll just have to wait to earn that money. As soon as you leap up that bracket. The tax, the HMRC say, okay, well, now you you pay for the year you're in plus the last year that you did. And that's what happened. So I got saddled with this 14 grand tax bill. It was Man. the year that I'd just done plus the year I was in and the prediction for the next year. Yeah, that's terrifying, right? It happened overnight, yeah. And, and, and I saved a bit of money, but for the first time I had disposable income. So I was eating better and I was buying clothes for myself. Um, and I had about... I had about, I think I had about four grand stored away. And I was like, I've never paid more than that. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And then this bill comes in and it's, it's 14K. And they weren't asking for 14K, they were asking for 11. Mm-hmm. But, and then the extra three would have been, it would have been in July. And I, I, my world crumbled because I was like, hold on, I now owe more money than I've ever had in my life to a ginormous institution like the HMRC. And I can't get out of it. There's no it's, way. I, there's mad, it's those mad things at that age that mm. really infantilize you. They make you, 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 you just start to feel, I'm a grown-up, I'm earning all this. Yeah. Then stuff like that happens, you think, I'm nah, a fucking I'm child. This yeah, is scary. A, I need to ring idiot. my mum and dad. I need to, you know, all sorts of things like that. It's, it's horrible. That's what I did. Right? <clears throat> I called my mum. I was like, oh, shit. And then I, I didn't call my dad. I was terrified of talking to my dad about it. So he never knew. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I need a solution. And you know what? I could have called HMRC and said, look, I, um, I could have been level-headed, but I wasn't. I was a hot-headed youth who was terrified. And I'm sure they would have figured out some sort of payment plan or, or whatever. But, but the, the, the reality was like, oh, shit, I owe this money to them. And I guess the thing where the tweet comes in is that my knowledge at the time was I owed money to, to HMRC. And tax is an important thing. It's why we have the NHS. It's why we have the BBC. It's why we have a welfare net. It's why the oldest people and the, and the disabled people in our society can afford a good living or used to be able to because we as a society look after each other. So I was always taught by my liberal Labour voting family of of immigrants that tax is important. We never talked about it more than that, but it was not Mm. ever something that I would assume I had a right to evade Mm. because I'm a citizen of the country. And that's, you know, and this is a country that opened its doors to my family in the 60s and 70s as as immigrants, as refugees. And you feel proud of that. And you want to be able to walk into a a hospital and say, hi, I've broken my arm. Can you fix it for free right now and not make me fill out a form? Those concepts, sometimes they're foreign to us because we don't experience them. But then when they do happen, you're like, oh, that's actually pretty good. So, And when, particularly in these industries, when you start to go to other countries, when you Mm. go to your Americas and stuff like that, and talk to people about insurance bills, about the amount they're having to pay, and yet still the amount of time they're having to wait for things. Again, there becomes a bit of a myth when you're in this country going, oh, the NHS is broken. If we were in America, we'd be able to be seen immediately. It's like, no, if you're in America, you'd be paying and still waiting, and you you wouldn't qualify, and all these different things. Everyone should know that from car insurance and other things that you pay, and then anything happens, and you're like oh, that's the one thing that I have to pay for myself, is it? Do you know what I mean? You know how these things work in our own experience. The scary thing in America is that you can go into a hospital with a very real emergency and they will ask for your health insurance details. Yeah. And if you don't give them, they don't have to fix you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's the, the gatekeeping of your safety and health is mm-hmm. like you can walk in. And that would never happen in the UK. You walk into a hospital, they will see you. 
if they can. They will yeah. try their hardest, yeah. but they will see you. But in America, they can just say, sign this form. And if you can't sign it, then they chuck you out. Yeah. So yeah, you know, that was that was like a massive wake-up call to me. And also a realization in myself that if I ever screwed up with the tax department, I would still have to pay it because it was an obligation. And of course I hated paying tax. Everyone hates paying tax because it's yeah. like, oh, that's money I earn, but you know what it's going to. And so that that tweet was like, it doesn't matter who you are, you don't have a right to put yourself in a careless situation like this Tory MP that I'm not going to name anymore because he's a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. But if you put yourself in a careless situation, you have a responsibility to get yourself out of it in a ethical way. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I did. I called up my grandma and she was like, well, this was going to be your inheritance, but you need it now. And so she forwarded me that that little bit of money and then Amazing. I've used the rest of my savings. And then I had no money and I paid that tax bill. And then from that day onwards, I put 35% of every single paycheck I ever got into a separate, I, I up a separate bank account literally for that. And to this day, <laughs> even though I'm a totally different person, that bank account still has a bunch of money in it. And I will never touch it because I'm too scared that one day, yeah, one day I'll get a tax bill. It'll be a little bit higher than I expected. Yeah. And it's it's also, yeah, it's it's silly because I don't need it. Particularly in our industry, because it is an industry that can be f- 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 feast and famine. You can have a year oh where God. everything's mm. crazy. So then the prediction or whatever else for next year is going to be like, oh, no, 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 no. That's no, not no, how this no. industry works. I'm not going to earn a yeah. penny next year because yeah, it yeah. can be... I'm going to buy less cheese. Down. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I do want to hear about you, 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 your journey into acting, but there's two things I want to make sure we talk about. So maybe we'll come back to that because I'm fascinated yeah. by it. I want to talk about, I mean, broadly, J- Jed Sh- Shepherd. Um, yeah. And then I want to t- talk about Willow. And then if we've missed anything along the way and we've got time, we'll circle back. But you, you and I met doing, as said, a Zoom table read for a project of Jed Sh- Shepherds. I'm not sure how much we can talk about. It's a short for Netflix, essentially. I don't think we can say, yeah. and I don't know if we can say that. more. But it's the it's that kind of industry we're now used to. The, don't say anything, and you, and you won't get in trouble. But um, you won't get fired. Yeah. <laughs> you first worked with Jed on Dashcam, right? Which we can talk about because it's out. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, if you want to know the Jed connection, it's yeah. lockdown 2020. So uh, the Jed connection is actually through Gemma Moore, who is also yep. the lead in that Netflix mm-hmm. short we did. Gemma and I met doing a film called Doom Annihilation yep. <laughs> in Bulgaria. God knows when, five, six years ago. This is me like starting my my on my track as an actor and, yeah. and taking roles and just seeing what, what would come my way and what I could do and what was interesting. And we met and became fast, firm friends. And then lockdown 2020 hit. And by this point, yeah, I'd met a few of these people. But they were, they're such a tight crew. Yeah, completely. And Gemma was, Gemma was basically saying, oh, we're going to get on Netflix and watch a movie. Do you want to join? We've got a Netflix quarantine movie club. Do you want to join? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I got dropped in this WhatsApp group. And this WhatsApp group was all the cast of hosts, plus, you know, some of the VFX artists, Steve, uh, some of the stunt people on it, Jed Shepard, exec producer and co-writer of it, Rob Savage, writer and director of, of Dashcam. Um, it was just this like fiery little WhatsApp group of really cool, and I would say largely horror-based yeah. creatives, but they yeah. also work in everything. And we were just there watching 
films on Netflix together during lockdown and chatting in this WhatsApp group and getting on Zoom and doing quizzes and doing all the same things. And it was this sort of like really interesting. So I was there before Host was made. I was in that right. WhatsApp group. Yeah, and I remember yeah, yeah. Jed Jed or someone saying that I, they would have had me in Host, but I couldn't set myself on fire. Um, but Teddy... <laughs> But Teddy could, so Teddy yeah. did it, and he's amazing at it. And he he did that yeah, better than I would have done it. But yeah, that that was where it started. So I actually remember that. I remember the conversation of of Rob's Rob starting the conversation in this, in the WhatsApp group of like, "There's noises in my attic," and it's starting there, and then that leading wow. to more discussion, and then that leading us to a Zoom where, and then I actually logged off that Zoom early, I think. But then that's where Rob did his his host attic stunt on Zoom where he said there were noises in his, in his attic and everyone was like, don't go up the attic. And then he goes up there and then he puts his phone in front of the laptops like seamlessly. So it, suddenly on the Zoom, we're watching this, what we think is Rob going up the attic, but it's not. It's a pre-recorded film with the ghost. And, and then that goes on Twitter and that goes viral. And then a couple of weeks, months later, Jed's messages, Rob or Rob messages at Jed and says Zoom seance. And then, and then host is made in lockdown and then comes That's out astounding. and is... Yeah, and it and and host came out <clears throat> while I was in Prague doing Wheel of Time. I had a little small mm-hmm. bit in Wheel of Time, and I was there at the end of 2020 doing that. And I was again, I was part of this the birth of this group of incredible creatives. And I was on the WhatsApp group, like, oh, it's coming out now, and, and I was seeing it shoot up the Rotten Tomatoes score. And yeah. it was at that point that that Jed and Rob then approached me and said, "Look, we've got another." thing coming and we want you to be in it and it's 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 this and i was over the moon i was like yeah i couldn't think of anything more exciting than to work with those guys so that's that's how i met jed uh, the busiest man in horror (laughs) but it's it's i mean so that other project was dashcam and it made my films of the year long list but it it got very mixed reviews and i can see why because the main protagonist is one of the most hateable characters in my memory of recent film history. So it's such a weird (laughs) thing to have someone that's so jarring, essentially a right-wing streamer, a Trump streamer kind of thing, as the lead that you're with the whole time in this horror. But I loved it. I loved how uncomfortable it made me and how... And your character is a good friend of theirs in in this world. So, yeah, how, how was that to get the script and read it and be like... Oh man, I probably, from knowing you a little bit, I hate all of these characters. How exciting. <laughs> Very exciting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. As, a, as an actor, I don't want to ever be in my comfort zone. Yeah. I, I, I want, as any creative, I want to feel like I'm being challenged and I want to try and do things that I have to feel like I'm working to get them right. And Dashcam was, was definitely one of those. I mean, I mean on, on a very basic level... Rob and Jed and Gemma O'Hurley, the, the, uh, their other co-writer and producer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those three are just incredibly unique creatives. And I knew And Gemma never seems to get enough of, of no. the credit there as well. Absolutely. Again, yeah, every time I speak to Jed about that trio, it's about that yeah. trio. And so it many is, yeah. bits of writing are about Rob and Jed. And it's like, no, that's I know. that needs to it's, be corrected. It's probably very reflective of the sexism and the misogyny in the industry mm-hmm. that she's not appreciated enough, but she is an incredible, incredible writer. And, and, and yeah, is responsible for a lot of the, you know, an equal third of, of that creative endeavor. But yeah, the three of them are just simply put very talented. And I, 
knew that anything I did with them would be amazing. I didn't really care what it was. So I was always, yeah. always going to say yes. But then when, it, <clears throat> when, when the idea came in, they were like, look, if Host was the lockdown film, then this dash cam is the film that happens when lockdown sort of ends, but we're a bit tense and scared. And the basic premise is found footage horror film that thrusts two unlikely leads. It was kind of pitched as like a buddy comedy, but a horror. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I guess Annie and Stretch are sort of two sides of the same coin in a way. They're both hateful characters in their own ways. And, and I mean, the heart of that film is just sort of like how you can be disappointed with someone that you used to know so well. Mm. And sometimes these things get lost in the edit or the concept. It's a very high concept film. But I think more than anything, it just makes people ask questions. And that's what it's, any good work should do. It's such a powerful key concept, though, right? Because I think we saw yeah. so much of that during the pandemic and during mm -hmm. all the social movements that were happening during the pandemic. We were looking on Facebook or Twitter or wherever else and going, oh, man, I thought better of you. I didn't know yeah. you were that person. I thought you were this yeah. person. and. Because people were desperate to still be connected to humanity. Yeah. And we have the internet to do that. But at the same time, we, were, we weren't. We were caged. And, yeah. and, I, and I think, you know, the whole Black Lives Matters movement, I mean, that is such an important movement that was born out of a, an entire, you know, the entirety of humanity being forced to stop and slow down and, and maybe look, start paying attention. And yeah. pay attention, yeah. You couldn't look away. You couldn't be distracted mm. anymore. It's mad and kind of obvious that that's when it happened because all the rest of history, we were able to distract ourselves and to look yeah. away and to find something else. Whereas the moment that we couldn't, the absolute yeah. injustice was unavoidable. And exactly yeah, right. Yeah. It's a mad one. And I think the, the key thing about Annie is that, is that what she represents isn't necessarily just the opposite to what liberals think. She represents... It, to me, and as a person, she's a sort of classic provocateur. Mm. And she has a Trump hat, but she's not a Trumper. She voted Kanye. Yeah. You know, she will say, <laughs> she will say things that, that provoke because that's in her nature and that's who she deems to be. Yeah. But we can all do damage, you know. Who's to, I mean, whether I'm right or wrong, who's to say that my comments don't anger multiple <laughs> Republicans and Tories yeah. out there? And it yeah. might, you know, uh, might not be doing as much damage as they might be doing to liberals who are, you know, struggling with very real problems, but I still might be doing damage. The real idea of the film was like, let's take these two people who knew each other at a time and had a bond over something, which was touring and having a, you know, a wild youth, um, and then put them on different paths and turn one of them into a, you know, I'm doing air quotation marks, social justice warrior vegan, and turn the other one into a, you know, a quite hard-hitting provocateur who maybe has some right-wing tendencies, but more than anything, just has a lot of vitriol and, and, and a way to sort of broadcast an anger against things that they disagree with, and then force them to endure horror <laughs> and death and see yeah. where, where, if they would look after each other. Yeah. Because that's that's what it is. And there, and there are parts in that film where there, there are things that are really tender between us. And you're like, wait, what other situation would you put these two people in a room together and expect them to connect? And I do, I, I, you know, the script came in and it was an 80-page scriptment, so no dialogue. The whole film was improvised. Right. Um, there were just situations that we would be in where we had a rough idea of where the scene was going to go. And then we would just we would just speak to each other and, and we would do takes that were like 20, 30 minutes long and then we'd do it again and then we'd do it again and Rob would refine those takes after watching them back and get to a place where 
um, after about 25 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, a scene would start to feel natural and feel like it was being caught for real, but then was also structured in a subtle way to move the story along. Um, and that. as you can imagine, min- hours was left on the cutting room floor. And I think there are things in there that I would have liked to have been in that didn't make it. And then there are other things that did make it that I never thought would be in there. And, you know, Rob has a responsibility as a, uh, a horror film director to create this roller coaster and he, he did it. But yeah, there was a lot of stuff that we shot at the beginning, which was lots of just Annie and I talking and hanging out and awkward mm. silences and awkward conversations. And a lot of that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I wish it had been in there, but I do understand why it is because it would have t- turned into a different film. Yeah. But yeah. It was a, it was a, a riot. <laughs> a mental and we shot it in November, December, January, 2020 to 2021 during lockdown or like that weird in and out lockdown period. Yeah. And it was cold and it was a night shoot and it was months in like Suffolk. And my character loses a shoe within 10 minutes of the film or something. So I spent like two months running around the, the Suffolk countryside without a shoe on. <laughs> Getting kicked in the it's face bleak. and rolling around. It was very bleak. I love it though. And I think we're in a really great era for low budget horror. And this is being reflected in s- cinemas, on streaming services and all of these things. Jed and Gemma and Rob are a key part of that. And it's a weird one for me because I've never particularly been a horror guy. Mm. But there is something about this era of horror that does draw me in and does excite me. And I think part of it is I've worked with Jed twice now. And part of it is they truly feel like a team effort. And I think that comes across on screen. And from what you've said there of how much was improvised and workshopped and then then uh, refined mm. and so on and so forth. It's an exciting way to work, right? To feel that everyone involved is yeah. pulling in the same direction. And not to say that can't always be the case in other areas of film, but there are certainly times you'll be on set and quite rightfully you'll know that there's a certain amount of people there who are there for a paycheck and there to do mm. their job because mm. you know it is what it is it's a job particularly yeah, like, there's nothing wrong with that no no it's absolutely fine but that's one of the beautiful things about these projects from what i've seen of, J- of jed and his team is everyone there is like look we want to make something yeah. as great as possible for everyone involved and it's exciting there's yeah. a buzz with that right I think the way I would sort of distill that, the essence of what you're saying down for me is I had a really great chat with a massive Hollywood producer a few months ago after Willow came out and I was being forced into meetings <laughs> that were terrifying and, and all sorts of yeah. interesting things. But I was talking to this guy and we were just thinking about, you know, everything everywhere all at once, one of the greatest films of last year and, mm-hmm. and what is style and what are new styles and where do we find new creative forces that are going to, push the needle and I, I was saying it's it's horror it's it's the sort of like low to mid-budget horror world because there's something about the horror community that is so supportive and so reliable so your Blumhouse's uh films you know your your like your low budget British horror films like Ben Wheatley you know mm-hmm. if if you make a horror film in that world you're gonna get an audience like whether it's a hundred thousand people this is going off on a slight tangent now, but I only found out this week that Ben Wheatley is making The Meg 2. Yeah. Which is just the most mind-blowing thing ever. I love Ben I Wheatley. Know. I would never have predicted him no, as The Meg 2, no. but I love it. And I can't, I can't wait, wait to see what he does with it. I can't 100%. wait to see what he does with it, yeah. Because he's a great director and he's he's got, yeah. he's got a proven uh, style and brand and it's, it's kind of like the Michelle Gondry's and the Spike Joneses of their day. It's mm-hmm. like these 
it, it, okay, it's very simple as an investment or, or as an economic formula. You make a product when you know you have an audience for it. And that means your product will be bought. We're in an industry, it is an industry, it's a money-making industry. So it has to have some formulaic reliability. And so with horror, you know, you make a great low budget horror in the UK or the US, then you will get 500,000 people go and watch it when it comes out. Maybe you'll get a million, maybe you'll get 2 million, but it means that you know, you'll get the numbers. So it means you can put the money in that will reflect that. So where the result of that is that there is less creative control from a financial point of view, in my opinion, in order to make your, uh, your gamble pay off. Yeah. So you're talking about hiring and commissioning great producers and directors and writers to make things and not touching it and being like, yeah, that's going to be great, whatever, here's the money, because we know people will watch it. So you, it's like horror films with the new music videos. So like yeah. 2020, 2021, I mean, The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss was like the higher end of that, but that film was absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, Possessor, the Brandon Cronenberg film, like mind-blowing creative yeah. ideas in there and visual ideas. Um, Mids- Midsummer. I went to see that. I was, I, was, I was filming in Canada when that came out yeah. and I was in isolation and I didn't know anything about it, but I just got out of my quarantine and I oh, could wow. go to this, this cinema. And I went for a daytime one because, again, I'm a big believer in yeah. the quarantining and distancing and all that. So I just looked at what was on in the daytime and there was about one other person in the screen and what unfolded in front of me was such a joy. After being on my own for two weeks to watch this insane film was like... Mm. Okay, all right, let's go. Yeah, and I'm the same as you. I'm not actually a horror guy. I've been in a couple of horror films and I, I wouldn't default to it. And I've definitely gone to, I, I remember I went to see The Conjuring 2 mm. with a bunch of my mates, housemates, my girlfriend at the time. And we, I, I, within 20 minutes, I was sweating and so uncomfortable that I had to get up and walk out of the cinema and sit in the lobby by myself. I was actually yeah. more excited about going out with my friends than I was seeing the film and I couldn't hack yeah. it. But yeah. I appreciate good films i appreciate good stories and so i will sit through a horror if i know it's going to be good and for the most part i can bank on that because horror is such an interesting world right now and it's where like interesting creative films are being made like hereditary and midsummer right Mm -hmm. you know uh, the you know the witch all all those throw uh, a24 in there when you were talking about the bloom house and these kind of things all the a24 horrors and 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 everything from a24 in fact but yeah just where yeah. they can go. With they, I guess they cut they cut their teeth as a sort of new studio on 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 that same method of like yeah. interesting creative films. And so there's a wealth of interesting stuff to look at out there when it comes to horror films. You just got to get past the fact that you'd be shit scared. <laughs> but the, you monkey know, like, at, like as well, I'm throwing yeah, I'm throwing monkey porn. This isn't porn. for the listeners now. This is just me. No, I mean, I, like we need to, to 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 get all the boxes correctly represented there because monkey porn <laughs> are, are valid in that. But well, I mean. I'm 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 conscious of time, and as you know, well, I've got I was exci- plenty of it. So <laughs> if you want to talk, I'll we'll talk. overrun. As you know, I was excited to talk about Willow anyway, but knowing your kind of rough age and era, hearing you talk about coming through with a passion for s- set design and creation, mm. how exciting was it to get the gig? of the Willow series because Willow as a film as a standalone it's rare that there's such a, that there's a standalone film that kind of has such an impact on so many people and our childhoods like Willow's a key part of my childhood but yeah. you think of others in that kind of era and it is your Star Wars and numerous other things that were a long series loads of stuff loads more mm. came from it your Lord of the Rings or whatever else a bit later on but mm. Willow was this standalone thing it, 
it makes me think of the of the Sex Pistols, right? Who had yeah. one album, but have influenced. <laughs> well, have, what have an album! This, like you remember it as they're this yeah. huge band that was so. It's like no, they had one album and were around for a couple of years. Uh, weird to say that, that Willow is the Sex Pistols of of, of fantasy <laughs> film, but but there we are. So how was that when that that audition came in? I guess, and then to go and be part of that world because. It looks yeah. stunning as well. The sets, mm. everything. It's amazing. I mean, it's, it's it's an absolute dream for an actor. I mean, the thing about acting is that it it is really a blessing if you can do it and get to do it for mm-hmm. two reasons. One, it's the most. It was one of the best jobs in the world, and a lot of it is instinctive, and so you really feel like like unlike most jobs, when you do it, you feel like you're actually tapping into something that is instinctively in you and being able to turn that into a career is such a lovely thing. Same with music. Um, and the other thing is it allows adults, it allows me as an adult to play. And playing is such an important thing in humanity and in our human experience. And it's, it's how we grow up as children. It's, it's, it's how we learn. And the idea that we stop that when we're older because of responsibility and we have to be as a social person and, and, and inhibitions, being allowed to go and have the freedom to not be judged for playing as, as a job is, is an absolute blessing. And so something like Willow is, it's, it's the epitome of that. It's, it's, it's toys. It's, 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 you know, it's weapons and fights and, and drama and comedy and exciting locations and sets and the scale of it was massive. And you really had, really had to stop and, tell myself to like appreciate a lot of it because it is overwhelming but at the time there were there were days when I would just be like that we would be on set shooting some sort of scene there'd be a lot of pressure and you've got to get it right but there would be like a stunning river and I'd be like I'm just gonna take my shoes off and stand in that river because I'm not shooting for about 10 minutes and then you're there and you're like I'm in a fucking Welsh valley <laughs> standing in one of those beautiful rivers I've ever seen and yeah I mean like I said I studied production design so I, and and as a production designer or as a maker, I was, I would err on the side of like, you know, aged, rusty, cool, steampunky, moss covered creations. Like that's yeah. what I was into. I was into sumptuous stop motion films, you know, like, like Wes Anderson stop motion films or, or like Guillermo del Toro and like the heightened, yeah. heightened stuff. So when I was making things, I was making like old rusty chairs or like, you know, like I said, lighthouses and, Things. You know, I, was, I, I love that kind of design. So Willow was like a full circle completion, just the other side of the camera. And one of my tutors, uh, one of my um, lecturers at, at Wimbledon where I studied was Va- Valerie Charlton, who was one of the prop designers and makers on Labyrinth and who made Hogwarts. Wow. Like that was her, that was one of her creations. Oh, so I was, shit. I studied with these people and I studied in that world. Uh, and when I left yeah. uni, I was like, I'm going to build pirate ships. I'm going to go make the Goonies. I'm, that's what I want to do. So to ha- end up being back in that world and yeah. fulfilling that in a way, but sort of getting to play with them rather than make them was spectacular. And yeah, I'm the same as you, man. I grew up in the in the 90s with a, with a sort of history of Mirror Mask and Princess Bride and Labyrinth, and Indiana Jones, Star Wars, um, Neil Gaiman books like Stardust. You know, my 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 youth and my formative years were steeped in escapism and fantasy. So I remember saying to John Kazanow, showrunner, that like, I can do this because the references have been percolating through my body since I was a child. It's not, you know, that the hard thing for me is going to be proving that I can do it, but I know I can do it. Mate, and that comes across on screen, honestly. There's... I knew you were in, in, involved in it. I've seen your post about it. I was like, oh, this would be good. As soon as Borman, your character, is on screen, 
it felt like one of those roles that someone has been waiting their whole life to play. Like, like, like this, yeah. just ev- everything has been leading up to this. It's like, all For right, sure. this is it now. This is perfect. And that comes across. And again, I want to be clear. I think everyone is amazing in this. I'm, I'm really not a fan of the term show stealer because I don't think that's our <laughs> job as actors. I think we're mm-hmm. meant to enhance the story. We're meant to be part of it all. So mm-hmm. I think it's a really weird term, but... I just think as a character and you in that role, it just, the the second you're there, it looks so comfortable and so at home. Mm. And as you say, the thing that you were, everything in your life has prepared you for this. It's a a beautiful thing to see those moments happen. Yeah, I mean, I I turn this around in my head all the time. What is acting and how do you work? And I think I I like to have a vision of myself. I'm sure you're the same, that that you're like a true chameleon and that I could go in and inhabit a role. But I'm now coming to accept and not be scared of the fact that there is part of your essence is essential to the character that you bring to life. And you shouldn't shy away from that. Of course, Mm -hmm. you need to... Mm -hmm tap into other emotional states and then a lot of the work can be done by the costumes and the set design and and the lines that are written for you and 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 my job really is to convey emotions in a way that is readable by an audience but not so bad that it looks like I'm overacting and not so human that I'm actually hiding it because a lot of the time I think we hide our emotions behind neutrality so you're sort of tapping into an ability to emote on screen that will make another person empathize with you but there is an essence of who you are that is brought to a character. And when you're casting or being cast in something, it's actually that that people are really looking for, I think. it's it, Obviously, you have to be able to act and do it well. But what they're really looking for is a quality that they hadn't conceived of or a quality that they know they want, and they're looking for that. And that's nothing to do really with whether you're a good or bad actor. It's about what you bring to it. And I think, what you know, the, the Willow process was a long one for me. It was about six months of casting and... That one of the biggest issues was that I was just too skinny. <laughs> I was very skinny, right. and I put put on a lot of muscle and worked out a lot whilst um, whilst prepping to get big to play Borman because he needed to be big, and it wasn't yeah. about looking sexy and all these things. It was about just being this, in a sense, gentle giant, but not really gentle, but a rogue with a heart of gold who had the the, the visual idea, that, you know, this idea that he could be a ferocious warrior, but. Yeah. I could soften him. And that was a physical thing that I had to do. But as for playing the character, there's a lot of me in him. He's a loud, present person who's very unavoidable. And that is kind of a person that I am. And I don't shy away from that. I'm very tall. Um, I've got long hair. I had a big beard. Um, I speak my mind. I love cutting sarcasm as a British person. <laughs> and and you know, So all of these things... They just sort of coalesced to, to, to create a perfect role. And he was written so well. And I, I think, you know, really, I just was, it was it was hard work, but also all of the stars aligned within it for it to, to work the way it did. And I, at no point was I too worried about what I was doing. There were different challenges and things, but it was, yeah, such an easy role to inhabit for me. I, I love it. And you talked briefly about the, the, the long casting process there. Mm. And I've not talked to you about this, but I had two or three auditions for Willow. Oh, really? And I got beaten at the last hurdle to the role of Toph by the wonderful Charlie Rawls, Charlie, who yeah. I absolutely adore. I've lost out twice to Charlie. <laughs> we worked together on a film called Kill Ben Like, and I think he's yes. amazing. And he's he's that gentle g- g- he is guy a gentle that you giant. spoke of there. And oh. again, I love losing out to Charlie because we're very different. Do you know what I mean? It's one of them where, like, Mm. you touched upon how 
and I'm really 99% of the time I'm at peace with this with casting they're, they're looking for something that's kind of out of your control like I exactly. know that I do my self tape I was like I'm there to say by the way I can act yeah. in case you weren't yeah. aware I can act now am I right for it or not do you know what I mean and I think there's for so sure. much that's out of your control there and there really is Charlie is someone who, again, now I've seen it, absolutely perfect and has got that that presence and that that look. But um, yeah, and you can't distill dude, it. Right? You can't no. distill what that is down in a simple way. And I, I remember, <clears throat> I remember because we got the scripts as they were being written as well. We didn't have a full overview of the story, but I knew from day one there would be a horse chase scene. A guy would find us. He would say my name. There would be a history there, yeah. and I very simply pegged him as a henchman-esque type character yeah. and wasn't prepared for the layers that, that John would give that character and how yeah. he would flip in episode five yeah. and how that story would unfold. And, and Charlie did it with such flair. And he, like, yeah. he, he did that thing that I hope to God that I can do, but I'm terrified that I can't. He did that thing of making lines funny without trying to be funny. And it's something that Martin McDonough does, for example, in, in Banshees of Inisherin and in Bruges. Like there are, there are yeah. scenes in those films that you are pissing yourself laughing, but the actors doing it, it's almost like they don't know it's funny. And that's what makes it funny. They're just saying it how they say it. A hundred percent. Again, he's finding, and Charlie's a master of that because that's exactly it. He's, he's knowing that that character, the humor is a hundred percent on the outside. Exactly. The humour is yeah. 100%. Like, that character isn't aware of, of any humour. And Charlie, in particular, often plays characters that the humour is in the fact that he presents as this big bird, as, as a henchman, as a one-dimensional yeah. henchman. So when he then delivers something deeper or more personal or more heartfelt, it's funny because of that. But he's not playing that. He's playing the... I'm unaware that I'm yeah. a henchman. I'm unaware of how you perceive me. I'm aware of who I am. And yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, that that whole that whole scene where he's like, is it too Kumini? <laughs> so yeah. Ellie's like, no, you just have a very developed palette. And he's like, oh, it's, just, it's so perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I love I, it. I love it. Well, I mean, you've talked about playing. And one of the things I've really enjoyed is seeing some of the behind the scenes footage and things like that because it looks like you guys were having fun and it's a weird one for me because I'm one that right all my friends kind of joke about this because I'm honestly not that into fun but <laughs> I love watching it I love observing it and I know that if I was on set I would have been so happy but I wouldn't have been you know I would have been at the sidelines smiling along as yeah. you and Erin and everyone else and Erin's another one that just I think Erin is someone now that when they're in something I'm going to want to give it a look because of the last couple of years sure. of their work, just one of those actors that like, right, there's some good choices being made either themselves or management or whomever else, but there's yeah. bags of talent there. And it's, yeah. So, much. so, so yeah. How was that to be part of this? It really felt like, and again, it's so obvious just to say, but when you're making a show that's about, a ragtag group of, of individuals coming together mm. and becoming an ensemble and all that, that's perfect for this industry because that's what this industry is. We are all individuals who are at home preparing your individual character and then you're thrown yeah. together and then you see if it works, if it gels, if it fits. Yeah. So I love when you can just steer the reality into the into such a broad or such an outrageous fiction and fantasy, 
but mm. you can steer the reality into that. So yeah, I guess how was that as a as a journey for this ensemble of actors rather than the characters on screen? We we I mean a key thing is that we had a thirty day long boot camp, right? Of weight training, horse riding, fight training, yes, um, rehearsals, all sorts of things. And that's a dream as an actor, right? To get told that. I always remember sure. my second ever acting job. I'd, I'd wrapped for the week on a Thursday, I think it was. And mm. they came up to me and said, what are you doing tomorrow night? It's Friday night. I was like, I'm about if you need me. They're like, if you're about, would, would you be up for coming in late afternoon for axe training? And then we've got a night shoot of just a storming of the castle battle. I was like... Yes, yeah, I'm about <laughs> axe training and storming a castle. <clears throat> Fucking hell, what do you think? So to get yeah. a 30 day thing, are you about for coming and spending 30 days mm. training with weapons, riding horses, essentially becoming Borman? Are you about for 30 days of being Borman? <laughs> that was it, and and I am so thankful because I'm amazed at how many jobs I have done where they're good and everyone is good on it, but there's just not enough time to rehearse. Yeah, and 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 it's a rarity. You know, we shouldn't be afraid of rehearsing. Like it's a skill, yeah. like anything, is refining your performance. And so we had, you know, we had a month to do this. And what what I wasn't expecting was for that month to become a bonding process. And you know, Princess Bride, Labyrinth, the original Willow, the you know, even Stardust, Lord of the Rings. These are all references, tonal references, and they all make sense for the show for sure. But the references that John was sending us that are really important were Heather's. The Breakfast Club. Um, right. John Hughes. They, they, were, they were Motley Crue yeah. um, films from the 90s where, 80s and 90s, where you're, you're getting characters that have their own individual arcs that aren't stepping on each other's toes, thrust together into situations that they don't, aren't ready for and having to find out that they're a family. And, and that is what we were trying to create. So we were trying to have fun and we were and the, you know the reality is is i'm 10 years older than, than than most of those kids and there were parts of me that were like should i be cooler <laughs> at points should i maybe just like not go to the pub or should i maybe not dance on set with them but the reality is like no nah, that's me as a person and that's the way 100%. i'm gonna bond with these kids and yeah. and and i was also will always have imposter syndrome and i was also like bowled over by these guys professionalism at every turn and their dedication to the role and seeing you know especially ruby who, who who started this at 21 and was one of six leads probably with more to do than me holding down a complex character for eight months going through emotional states at 20 i was an absolute mess at 21 i couldn't have done yeah. anything with this amount of responsibility at 21 i don't know what yeah. i was doing at 21 but it wasn't anything like this i was not paying my you tax were bill preparing for a huge tax bill to come yeah, yeah exactly. that's what i was yeah i was squandering my inheritance <laughs> on the welfare state um so and so I, I was there as like in a sense an older statesman but also much greener than some of the other actors there yeah and so part of me, and I've always felt this part about myself, like even though I'm, you know, in the 30s now, I do feel like a child. And I started a new career path at 29. So I feel at the same level as people younger than me because I'm still having new experiences like them. So it was very easy to just give myself into that. And we were firm. We, we became firm friends. We really did. And we will love each other forever. And I think, you know, we then spent months apart doing other jobs and in other countries. And then we got back together again around September to start doing press. And it was instant. Like the six of us got together and suddenly it was like, oh, the fun times are still here. And again, it's playing. We were allowed to tap into this raw, untangible 
connection between people that are, go- are going on an adventure. And that's what we were doing in, in reality. We were on an adventure. We were genuinely climbing mountains in Wales and we were doing these lofty things like shooting huge fight scenes that were scary and terrifying to us. So the characters we were playing were, were not too dissimilar in essence to who we are as people. And it was a joyous thing. I love it. And again, I think there's a beautiful thing. I feel you can tell how to word this. I said at the start, this is one of the least I've prepped for uh, uh, for someone I don't actually know that well. But you can tell when there's a connection with someone in that, like, I walk on every set and I can't fucking believe it. Mm. It's such a buzz every single Mm. time. It's such a buzz. It's such a dream. It's such an honour. And I've done this. I made a career change like mid-30s or late-30s moving into this. But when you talked about just standing with your feet in a in a river, I remember being on my second ever, or my first film set, my second ever, no, it was my first set. Um, mm. The first thing I ever w- w- worked on was a, a Guy Ritchie thing. And I remember right. having a moment, I was only in the background, and it's why I kind of had the time to have this moment of just looking around and going... Fuck. Like, yeah. I felt like I, this is going to sound like a stupid sentence because of what I was doing, but I felt like I was in a movie, yeah. <laughs> which ah. is stupid because I was. But understand, I felt like me was in a movie within a I movie. I was getting to the set, was so, and it was a, it was a, it was a, a medieval thing. So the set right. was glorious. Mm. And then I could just see from where I was, I could see outside of it. Yeah. I could see, I could f- frame it to be your willows your lab rooms, all of these things. And then I could just look and see the cameramen and see yeah. the the bits outside of it. And I just had a moment there. And, and it was only when we were, the leads were kind of working through the scene and deciding blockings and things like that. So I didn't ruin anything, but I had a few moments of just being like, man, look at this, look at this shit. And I try and have that on every job I have now. I'll normally try and go to set at some point when I'm not needed or when I've wrapped. So, oh, yeah. so I can have that moment and not be holding anyone up. Mm, <laughs> so I yeah. can just go and have that moment and just stand or worried there. worried about go, your own work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just stand there and go, oh man, how mad is this? How mad is mm. all of this? And again, I think there is something. And again, it's not even necessary. If I, if I was to pick my genre of film to watch, it is dramas and things like that. But... There's something about fantasy and medieval stuff and things like that that just stepping into those worlds yeah. is fucking awe-inspiring. It is. And I've always... like I, will, I love dramas and I love horrors and I love being in dramas and complex emotional states. And as an actor, I love to strive for that kind of work. But <laughs> I will always default to watching a Marvel film or... Yeah. Jurassic Park or something yeah. with vast yeah, 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 escapism yeah. because that's yeah. why there's enough drama in my life already, you know? Well, I, yeah. well, I, I want to escape and I want big sets and I want magic yeah. and, and that's to play. I mean, the, the show I'm doing now is, is, is in a sense real world because it's, it's, it's historical, but it's not too fantastical. But it's the same feeling. Like I stepped on set on Tuesday or on Saturday actually to do a rehearsal. And, you know, this is set in Italy in the 1300s. And so they've built this epic courtyard set of this Italian villa and it is just inconceivable to the to the the point where like there's like an inside outside bit and there's a massive dining area and then there's these huge windows on on the set and you look through the windows and out the back is a massive matte painting but then between the matte painting and the windows are these beautiful 
sculpted models of hills to give it a 3D element. And it's just wow. astounding. And you're there like, this has been put here for us to play in. Like, yeah. they've built this. And that's what film, the, the, the beauty of the film industry and the crazy thing about it is like you essentially build a company from the ground up to function for like a little bit of time and then it disappears. But then it mm-hmm. creates something small or 2D that then lives on a screen forever. It's such a mind-boggling thing to be a part of. And yeah, I mean, that, and that was the thing with Willow. A big, as- a big aspect of the show was trying to, fo- like the original film did, was fold in new visual effects techniques, which are astounding and incredible, but also mm-hmm. honor the classic style of creature effects. And so there was a lot of practical effects. The sets were built. There was green screen for the sake of accenting what was already there, but all the sets were real sets. And at no point were we stood against a big green wall mm-hmm. having to imagine anything all we had to imagine was what we were seeing but just a bit bigger and then on top of that it was wales we shot in wales because we wanted to be in the brecon beacons which is an hour and a half away from from set and it's mountains and valleys and vast plains and all of that is real like you see it in the show and you're like that's real we went there and and even that is astounding with that one of the at the top of episode five when we were making our way through the wildwoods at one point we're sort of like i'm hacking my way through this forest that forest is like 800 years old and hasn't been touched. Yeah. And when I say hacking, I was hacking away at expertly placed <laughs> branches that weren't yeah. there originally because yeah, yeah. that forest was untouched. And we drive for an hour and a half and then get out and go to the unit base and change into our costume and then get in another little car and drive to a little forest track and then get into a little buggy and drive in a little forest buggy and then get out that buggy and walk for 20 minutes through a, a cordoned off path to get to a place that human beings haven't been in for hundreds of years. And you look at it and you're like, you know, I used to think, how would Robin Hood have hid in the woods? Because they're not that good at hiding in. And then you see a a natural forest and you're like, oh shit, I can't actually see further than 10 meters. It's overgrown. It's a wild world. And the opportunity to go and live that life and do that as my job is never lost on me. So I I, I must always take that same moment that you, you take and just be like, wow, like this is astounding. Again, this is kind of going off podcast now, but have, have you seen the film Monos or Monos? Mm. Monos, no, not yet. No. Note it down. It came out a my recommendations. years back and it's just one of them that like they shot it proper in the in the jungle, a really, a, a, a young team. Okay. It feels like it couldn't oh, be made. of course. This was, well, this was in, um, was this in Central America or South America? Yeah, 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 yes, yeah, in yes. South America. It's, and yeah. it's just, it's one of them where you're like, wow, this, to be part of this would have been amazing because it would be so hard or mm. so easy to blur the line between, yeah. oh, we're making a film and we're just existing in the jungles. This is astounding. But yeah, yeah. it's worth a look. Well, to kind of get towards r- r- wrapping things up, I want to know how things have been since Willow. Because as said, example I'll give you here, one of my old pals is Br- Br- Brett Goldstein, who in recent yes. years has been smashing everything. And it's always mm. felt to me, I would watch Brett in Super Bob, or or we used to do hmm. a thing called Corner Boys that was, was just me and him. Yeah, I'd watch him and go, he's creative, he's incredibly handsome, he can act his ass off. Like, at some point, the world is going to see Brett and we're going to be off to the races. That's happened now with two years in a row of of Grammys and all this kind of thing, or whatever he's yeah. won. Uh, not Grammys, that's the wrong one. Um, <laughs> he's a singer he's, as well. <laughs> yeah, he's, 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 he's got it all. But watching you in Willow, I was like, he's tall, 
He's a good-looking lad. He can act his ass off. He's f- funny. This is this is you know about to go crazy. So has it gone as crazy as 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 I feel it probably is or or will? How's no, it all feeling? Instagram is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing about this industry is it's fickle, and no one is fickle. It's just. Okay, my my mantra throughout life has been: it's never a thing. Nothing is a thing. Nothing is a thing until it's a thing. Mm-hmm, so don't so don't anticipate. Maybe a little bit of you can hope for like fun stuff to come, but it's not worth fixating on that. It's only worth being present and making the right. Well, oh, this industry is the master the of nothing is a thing until it's a thing. Until exactly. you're literally on set. Just, yeah, yeah, and yeah. even then, you're not safe. <laughs> You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Get about four yeah. days in the can and then you know it's probably going to cost more to replace you than it is to just yeah. stick with you. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. my aim, is don't yeah. cause a fuss till you've done a week's worth of shooting. But yeah, I mean, the thing about Willow is it it was an absolute dream come true. And, and my conversations with my agent and everything up until I got Willow was like, there's a trajectory here and we're hoping it goes up because that's mm-hmm. what we see in you and that's what I want for myself. And I was trying to figure out what I can offer to the industry. And I was privileged to be a relatively successful commercials fashion film director when I was becoming an actor. And so I didn't take every role that came my way because I wasn't a jobbing actor. I was like, well, this is something I can do and it's fun, but why do I want to do it? So I would only take roles that were interesting to me. So I never, I tried very hard. I think I did twice maybe. I just didn't play anyone who was written as Indian. I was like, I, I just need to play not Indian to show that I can do that and show that other people can do that. And so I didn't work for two, three years. And I did one job here and one job there. But then I started to build a reel and the roles got more interesting and the jobs got better and the caliber of the creatives got better. And I was like, okay, well, there is a trajectory here. But I never in a million years saw myself as a lead actor in anything. I was like, maybe I was just too cynical. I was like, the world's not really ready for it. Or maybe I just don't know what it is that I can offer. And then the breakdown for Willow came in. And at the time it was called Untitled Disney Plus Project. But I pretty quickly got an idea for what it was. And I read it and the cast breakdown was, this is the Captain Jack Sparrow, Han Solo of the group. And I knew in my heart of hearts, I was like, I can do this. And if I get this, this will be life-changing. But Mm. I can't fixate on that. And I was dragged through the ringer. And I don't know how I managed to convince them to do it. I know what I tried to do, but I did. But then all the way through shooting it, I was like, this doesn't feel real. (laughs) And then very quickly, I wouldn't say I got uncomfortable, but very quickly through shooting it, I realized that I was like, I can't rest on my laurels here if I do a good job of this. I won't know if I've done a good job of this till at least six months after we've stopped shooting and I start seeing some ADR stuff. Mm -hmm. So I have to trust that I've done a good job, but I also have to trust that I might need to prove myself in other, you know, spheres and, 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 and do other things. So I worked hard. And so... The way it is, is that a job, you get cast on a job and then suddenly you're castable. And so another job will be like, well, he got cast by that job. So he's obviously not a terrible actor, but we don't have anything on a reel. And so Willow was yeah. there and I was like, I'm a leading Willow. But now I think about it, everything I did after Willow, no one had any genuine idea whether I was good or not. They were like, well, he's in this Disney plus show, but he could be real stingy. So let's yeah. see. So the yeah. roles weren't massive, but I went straight off the bat and I did a feature film in, in um, Thailand for Gareth Edwards, who directed Rogue One. It's his, mm-hmm. This is his big cinematic sci-fi epic baby. And again, like I'm not a huge part in that film. I'm a presence and I'm a small cog in a very big, interesting machine. You know, it's John David Washington as a lead and, and Gemma Chan and Ken Watanabe, amazing cast. But yeah. I was like, I need to go and do something different. So I went and did this straight after, literally three weeks after when I wrapped, I went to Thailand for three and a half months. And then after that, 
it was like, I should probably break. I've been working for 13 months straight now. I should have a break. But part of me was like, mm, you still got something to prove. You, you got to keep doing, you know, because Willow will come out and you'll be big, tall, bearded pirate guy with sword. Mm. And maybe you need to prove you can do more than that. So I went yeah. straight to Toron- Toronto and did an, another show um, with Zoe Lister-Jones, which is called Slip, which is coming out in May. And that's a sort of more, there's a supernatural element to it, but it's me playing a normal human being, not, not a pirate yeah. or a robot or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I, you know, again, and then I was, I was just, I've, I've always been and always will be desperate to work and desperate to prove I can do something else. So, so I guess what I can say is that work is, is coming in, which is really mm-hmm. good. So people yeah. have identified that there's something here that I can utilize to do my job well. This show I'm doing right now, the Decameron is, is really interesting. But again, the industry is fickle and it's strange. And what, what has been weird is going from relative anonymity to slightly less anonymous. And having like, you know, 15,000 Instagram followers in like a couple of weeks. And then people <laughs> talking to me that are strangers and professing their love for me, which will always be weird. But I'm more surprised at how it hasn't affected me too much because that's what I was worried about. And so I still feel like me. I still live with my brother and our flatmates back in London. I don't want to buy a massive house. I don't want to become a dickhead i want to stay true to the person i was and i think largely i'm old enough to have had enough life experience that this isn't going to affect me too much and and i don't really know how i would quantify the idea of things going crazy except for that i'm still working and that's a good thing and i hope that i'm still able to push the needle and and do different stuff Um, i think there's some real benefits in coming into any industry with a little bit of life under your belt it's mm-hmm. why I've always had sympathy for your Justin Biebers or your Miley Cyruses and all these kind of things. Because as you said earlier, when I was that age, I was a yeah. dickhead, but no one was looking. So when these young kids act up or people are all shocked, to, oh, this this guy seems like a real prick at this moment, it's like, well, yeah, it's because they can do anything they want yeah. and the world is all is focused on them. And I think there is really something. I think all of them a lot of them tend to come out the other end okay in the end. But yeah, I think there is a real benefit, as you say, of coming into this industry with a little bit of a more grown-up head on your shoulders and going, all right, well, this is this is going to be interesting. Well, I, th- I think I'm a good actor because I have a unique lived experience that I can draw from. Yeah. And largely, if you're an actor, you're not going to be playing an actor. <laughs> you're not going to be yeah. playing someone who jets around the world and gets to yeah. stay in lovely apartments and has money. Yeah. And you're going to be playing a person <laughs> and you need to know what it's like to be a person. And I have been lucky enough to have a life where I had to work hard for what I wanted, but also had the privilege of, of loving parents. And, you know, I never need, really wanted for anything. I, I didn't grow up rich, but I didn't grow up poor either. But I put myself through uni by working as a silver service like, you know, a waiter serving champagne at like Ascot and stuff. Like, you know, I, I worked hard as a kid and I learned what it's like to be at the bottom rung of the ladder. And, and then I did that in the film industry. I started off as a runner and I worked in the art department as a standby prop man, as an art department assistant, a production designer, worked as a camera operator. You know, I did an editor. I did like pretty much every job on a film set to understand how a film set works. So when I get there now, I have an understanding yeah. of real life problems. And like, 
getting up, you know, one of the hardest things about being an actor is getting up at five in the morning and going to work and stuff. But I get, I get up and I get picked up and I get taken to work and I get sat in a chair and I get massaged and then put fucking makeup on my face. And then I get given an, another chair for the entirety of the day. And everyone, you know, and, and I think these are the things that are quite difficult. Is it like, in order for an actor to do their job, they need to be available on set all the time in case anything changes or ready to do their job. And for that reason, things are done for you. So I can't just walk off and grab a coffee because they might be like, oh, we need you in two minutes. So someone will go and get that for me. And you've got to remember that that's happening to serve the bigger purpose. It's not happening because you're an actor and you're special. It's happening because that's what the film set requires. It's, it's the hardest bit to get used to. I remember, again, sh- shooting during the pandemic, I wasn't allowed to open the door to my car <laughs> yeah. to go back because of because the driver had COVID. to be the only one touching yeah. it because of spreading the things and all this. Yeah. Mate, I found that so hard because yeah. I don't come from that that world to stand there and wait for someone to get to get out, walk around yeah. and open Other the door the for car. me. I'm yeah. like, oh fuck, this is so hard and weird. But as you say, in that situation, it was COVID. In so yeah. many situations on set, it's as you say, it's for the greater purpose. So yeah, number so one, not- you need to be comfortable with that. And number two, you need to make sure you don't think it's for any other other exactly. reason. <laughs> don't let it go to your head. Don't don't get to a point yeah. where you're saying, "Can you go get me a coffee?" Yeah, <laughs> let them yeah. offer yeah. because that's yeah. what their yeah. job yeah. is. Yeah. 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 And you yeah. say thank you so much and just try to be a good person about it. So I don't know. You know, I don't know what when you say are things going crazy. I don't really know what crazy means. What what I am constantly thankful for and feeling blessed for every single day is people saying that they have enjoyed my performance in Willow and they think I've done a good job. And that that is validation that I was chosen well for it and that I did a, a good job and, and that's healthy and, and, and makes me happy to see. And having strangers, I mean, the other day, this amazing illustrator did this drawing of me that I posted on Instagram and it was like, I was expecting fan art for sure because that's what happens with these big franchise things. Yeah. You get fan art of your work. But um, this amazing illustrator, I think her name is Carol, Carolyn Schur, she had just been like looking at pictures of me doing press and stuff and getting an idea of like what I was as a person and had decided to encapsulate that in this illustration of me that is one of the most stunning bits of art I've ever seen. And I couldn't believe that this stranger had taken my essence and turned it into inspiration to make some beautiful art. And it was, it was just, I was beside myself. I was looking at it. I was like, this is stunning. Like, why do I deserve that? And, and what, you know, and, but like the talent that she has that, and she's turned this thing into this bit of artwork was just beautiful. And like, I guess I live in a world now where people have the <laughs> right to do that. And yeah. I've chosen that. Um, and I have to be okay with that. And it's a new thing, but it's also very, very lovely. And, and there are people out there who don't like me. I've definitely seen a tweet where like, someone's been like, this guy doesn't need, deserve to be in the, in the Willow universe. He's not white. And I'm like, mm, yeah, but that, none of that shit bothers me. Like, I don't care. Like people are always going to be angry at something. So yeah, I think I'm just trying to ride whatever relatively healthy wave this is <laughs> and stick with it until it all comes crashing down. And then I'll go back to I'll go back to being an editor, mate. I, I'm, <laughs> you know. I'm thoroughly enjoying watching where this wave leads to. I completely feel you on that as well. I've still always got in the back of my head that if I need to go back to working in HMV. I've still got the skills. I've, yeah. I, I did it for a long time. I know what I'm doing. So I feel you in that respect. I w- you know, I would be very happy opening yeah. a bar somewhere yeah. with a license later than 11.30. So probably yeah. not London. But like, 
I'm a people person and I love interacting with people. And the idea of having my own bar that I could decorate and just like have people come in and talk to them and turn it into a fun spot to hang, that would be a fulfilling life for me. And I'm lucky that I could hopefully use whatever I'm doing now to get to a financial place where I could maybe do that. And that, that would be fulfilling enough for me. It's just the, the, you know, this is the path I've ended up on and I'm going to try and make it work. But as, as long as I can find something that allows me to facilitate being an open person and, and being able to talk to new people every day, that would be fulfilling enough. So I do have a backup. I love it. That or a sandwich shop on a beach. They Actually, both work. Oh. They both work. Well, I appreciate you taking <laughs> the work. time to, to, to talk to me today. Um, and as I said, oh, I'm course. excited I'm to fan. see where everything leads. I'm excited for us to, to, to be on a set together at some point. As I said, we did this thing with Jed, yes, but we I didn't really we did, cross yeah. paths other than on the Zoom thing. So no. I'm glad we got to have a chat and no. a connect then. But yeah, I'm excited for all that's ahead. Well, we, let's write something, man. Let's, let's do it. I, I mean, I was going to ask, as as a rule, I promise I'm, I'm wrapping things up now, but have you got plans to write and direct? As you said, that's where you're, you're, yeah. you come from as such, and it's blowing up on the other side of the camera. Have you got plans to write and direct and, and make things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, writing, not so much. I've never really been able to figure out what my story is mm-hmm. or what stories I want to tell, and, and I'm not a blank piece of paper kind of person. And as a director, I just loved facilitating putting people's work it, you know, like as a commercial director, a fashion director, you get given these inspirations that are either music, so, you know, songs for music videos or, or clothes or, or concepts or, uh, and you can distill that and turn it into a visual piece. And I always love that. And I love being able to convey emotion on camera, whether I'm doing it or whether I'm looking mm-hmm. for it. And I do have good instincts as a writer if I'm working with other people. So I've, I've written, I'm, I'm writing a film with, a, with a, a, another great director who I've known for years as a commercial director called Joe Connor. And it's a sort of, dark, twisted First World War film that I'm desperate to get made yeah. because there's so much I want to say about the First World War, especially as a multicultural war. And we've been cooking that up and that's going forward and I'd be a producer and I'd be in that and he would direct it and I've, I'm co-writing the script with him. Well, he's, we've written the story together. So yeah, I definitely want to do that. I'm also trying to turn a, uh, a book into a film as well as a sort of vehicle for me that I think would be my sort of satirical cynical answer to james bond um love it so yeah definitely definitely designs to direct again i i love the, the, it's such a buzz i mean acting yeah. is a buzz but the directing is a different thing man it's oof, it's like being the conductor of this remarkable orchestra yeah. putting it all together and, and having the control to, to just just create visuals man I, I love it so it's definitely yeah it's definitely there and i'm keen to write with other people and and and, and just I, I just love the process of seeing emotion on page and thinking, how can I make that visual and interesting so that it resonates with other people? So that, that can come in many different forms. And I think the key to all of this is, is collaboration. Yeah. You know, you're never going to be a great actor if you just sit at home and wait for the jobs to come in. You should go out and you should make stuff with friends and you should meet people like Jed Shepard and you should open yourself up to collaboration and you should, you know, we, we, if you're lucky enough, blessed enough to have an iPhone, which most of us can get you've got this thing in the palm of your hand that can make good looking visuals and there's nothing really to stop you from learning how to do that and learning whether you're good at it or bad at it and 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 opening up to those experiences will hopefully refine your craft and and so that's even now that you know i have scripts coming in and i'm doing good jobs there's still a thirsty part of me that's like yeah but i could do something myself so maybe i should just talk to someone or write a script and do something else on the side and yeah, just nurturing that thirst to create, I think. Is it's important. balancing it all, isn't it? I, I have exactly that. I've got a project at the moment that's 100% my main focus that I want to create myself and all this. But 
I had a really good a self tape come in at the weekend, and it's a really good role. Right. If that came in, then that's the beauty of stuff that you're creating yourself. You should have a level of flexibility there. I should be able to say, all right, well, you know, if yeah. if needs be, that 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 means I've got another four months to prepare this, and then and then we can push on it, yeah. and things like that. So yeah, it's fun, man. And the other that self tape is still work, yeah. like self tapes are work. You know, they're one of the uh, the few ways that we can refine our yeah. our skill set, and it's slightly harder than film and TV acting because you're actually having to do it all yeah. in one take. <laughs> so it's yeah. like theatre, and you're also interpreting a script. and And the best self tapes I've done have been less about the performance and more about me trying to take as much tonally off the page. And I've done self tapes that have been absolutely wild. I mean, my second self tape for Willow I actually shot in the woods, and I was shoot- I did it whilst we were shooting Dash. I love it. And in the script, it was like. Borman's, it's, it's, it's one of the scenes that is, is in, fi- in episode five and it's a sort of earlier version of that scene, but essentially Borman's tied up and he's being quizzed by Scorpio. And in the script, it sort of says, uh, Scorpio kicks him in the chest off of his chair. And I was like, that's something that is essential to this script and essential to my performance. And I need to figure out a way of doing that. And I couldn't have done that tape the way I did it, just standing in front of a white yeah. wall. So I took myself out to the woods with a chair and a camera and I got the stunt team, what Teddy and Anya and her partner Chris, who were doing the stunts on dash cam to come and help me shoot it. God bless them. And uh, I had Anya, Anya behind the camera. She was reading as Scorpio. And Teddy, <laughs> Teddy, who has the biggest legs I've ever seen on a human being. That guy is wham. He was tasked, he was given the glorious task of kicking me off my chair. <laughs> so I had this stunt pad on my chair. So I did this tape with my arms tight behind my back, staring at the camera, doing the ball and stuff. And then out of nowhere, Teddy's foot comes off camera, boots me in the chest and smashes me backwards. And it's just, ow! Which then, that beat actually then made it into episode six where I fall through the wall. But then, yeah, while I was down on the ground, he was like, I'm going to rub some leaves in your hair. I was like, thanks, mate. And so he just like rubbed a bunch of shit in my hair and then my chair just comes back up and I'm there and I've just got twigs and shit sticking out of my beard. And I, I was just trying amazing. to pull, I was trying to pull anything off the page tonally that would show that I got mm. the job. I got it. I got the show. I got the humor or, or my interpretation of what it was. It was like these little nuances and these little sprinklings that we're going to add. And I was like, this is much more interesting to me than just me trying to act in front of a yeah. white wall. And if I've got an, an essence or a comedy or a physical humor that I can bring to this, I need to show that. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to do with this tape. So I did versions of it in front of the white wall and then I did this one in the forest and I sent it to my agent. He was like, was that the forest one? And I think, I think stuff like that really helped. And, and that was... That that's me refining my craft and and learning. And it's the job isn't just get the job, go on set and act. It's, it's doing that stuff. Like I love doing that stuff. I want more self-tapes. I hope I don't yeah. get to a place where people just start offering me roles because I want to audition. I want to Mate, <laughs> you know, I completely I wanna... agree. I had one role that was just offered to me and I begged them to let me do a self-tape because I was like, <laughs> I, I want to give you an idea yeah. of what I want to do with this, because yeah. that's kind of part of it. I don't want to get there yeah. and it'd be wrong. And yeah, again, I completely sure. agree as well. Yeah, the I buzz when a script comes through and I'm learning it and I come up with something extra. And again, I don't think these things sh- mm. should be f- forced or anything like that. But when you can go, oh, no. I'm actually filming in the woods. I can really add something here to give an option. Yeah, I think that's such a buzz and excitement because whether you get it or not, that casting director or that producer or that director or whomever else can go, oh, I've got an idea of them. And it might not be right for what they yeah. had in mind for this, and you might not, but I've got for an sure. idea of, of them now. So at some point, I know if I need that, I've, I can get it, you know? 
And with like any creative endeavor in the industry, you need to cut through. Like there's noise and it's more than now more than ever, there's noise everywhere. There's so much music, so much film, so much theater and stuff. Like what is going to set you apart and what means that you're working just a little bit harder than you normally would to be better? Those are just the all important sort of tenants to just stick by. Yeah, I, that, that's what I find exciting. That's what I find challenging. Like my favorite part of my job is blocking. My favorite part of acting is that moment where all the actors get together and you, for the first time, spend, if you're lucky, half an hour, 45 minutes with the right director, reading the scene, figuring out the reality of it, the logistics of it, the physicality of it, blocking it out like a chamber piece, like a play, and getting it fiery. So that when you start shooting it and you break that thing up to a million pieces and you do a close-up and then a wide and you do it again and again and again, you've actually done it in its best yeah. form. Yeah. <laughs> and that that's acting. That's like that's like when it's really exciting to me. I love I love blocking. Well, that's what we did on Saturday. We did a big day of just like hours of rehearsing these four scenes. I have like 10 people in them and running around the set and figuring out where I'm going to go and then remembering that and being like, oh, there's this moment here where it's completely dead between us. So I just walk over there and give them a sort of pat on the back and yeah, all this stuff. It's like, that's the creative element of it. I love it. I love, love it, it, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the, t- the time I said. I'm going to wrap up now or I'm going to keep rambling on at you for ages and we'll, <laughs> and we'll never end. Thank you, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a joy, man. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. What a joy that was. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. I told you we were were struggling to stop there. One thing we didn't talk about as much as I'd planned was was Aaron Kellyman, who's in Willow, who has been in a couple of the Star Wars things, was in a really good show, a British show about a coach driver. Honestly, another superstar in the making. Um, I need to get get, get them on the podcast at some point. But yeah, I'll be back next week with more conversations. We're getting close to 500 episodes, man. That's a lot of episodes. That's a whole lot of episodes. And it's mad to me that you lot are so supportive and have been from day one. So thank you. Now would be a good time to to dig back into the back catalogue and either find any you missed or go go back and revisit some favourites because, um, as I said, it's a lot of episodes, man. There's a, a, a lot in there. We've been doing this for a while. Yeah, I'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Titter.